0: Hi. Just a reminder that if you enjoy this podcast and want to help it grow and keep going, then it would be greatly appreciated if you could leave a like or a comment or a rating or subscribe on whatever platform you use. We also have a Patreon, and if you're willing and able to give $3, $5, $10 a month, you'll get various things in return, and It will be greatly appreciated, no matter how much it is and no matter how long you can do it for. Anything at all helps to keep this going and helps to keep it free. I'm your host, Tom Kearns, and welcome to the Anglo-Saxon England podcast, episode 22, Offer and the Dream of Empire. Skirting the border between England and Wales for 150 miles, there runs a long line of earth dug up from the side closest to Wales and then piled up to make a rampart that in places reaches 25 feet in height. The ditch left by digging the earth up is in places 6 feet deep. This long earthwork has gone down in history by the name of Offa's Dyke, dyke being a term in England for such defensive earthworks built during the early middle ages. Offa's Dyke was the largest construction project undertaken in Britain between the Roman occupation and the Norman conquest. At 150 miles, it was longer even than Hadrian's Wall, which ran only to 117 miles. Yet, despite representing such an enormous expenditure of labour, when, why, and by whom the dike was built has been the subject of debate, since no contemporary sources make any reference to it. The earliest reference, and the one that forever linked it with the reign of King Offer of Mercia, was made by the Welsh cleric Asser who was a member of King Alfred the Great's court in the late 9th century. In his life of King Alfred, Asser says that, There was in Mercia, in fairly recent times, a certain vigorous king called Offa, who terrified all the neighbouring kings and provinces around him, and who had a great dyke built between Wales and Mercia from sea to sea. In truth, the dyke never ran from sea to sea, And it's not even certain that all of it was built during Offa's time, but this shouldn't distract from the enormous undertaking that it represented. Offa's Dyke stands as a monument that is at once both impressive and mysterious, and in this it is much like Offa himself. It is certain from what survives that Offa was a king unlike any that England had seen before, or would see again for over a century but he is very poorly served by the primary evidence, since no chronicles or histories of his reign survive. We're not entirely at sea, though, since copious charters, coins, and letters survive, which paint a fascinating picture of Offa's life and his impact on England, but these must be pieced together, and they still leave a lot of blank areas where we need to infer occurrences. Their testimony, though, tells us that Offa, especially later in his reign, attempted to fundamentally change the nature of royal power in Mercia by elevating it from charismatic military overlordship to something higher, imbued with the sacral authority of Christian imperialism, as it was exemplified on the continent in the form of the Emperor Charlemagne with the blessing of the Pope. The innovations of Offa's reign led some modern historians to present it as an abortive attempt to create a unified Kingdom of England. This view isn't widely held nowadays, and instead it is now clear that Offa was mainly focused on securing a greater Mercia, possibly even a Mercian Empire, within Southern Britain along Carolingian lines. I know this can seem odd to us today, who are used to seeing England and Wales as defined and coherent nations in their own right, but we must put that view aside when we think about the late 8th century, when Offa was king, since at that time, where we now see unified nations, there were in fact various smaller kingdoms, each with their own traditions and cultural heritage. There's no reason to think that men from Mercia, Wessex, Powys, or Dehebarth would have seen their unification into single nations as inevitable, or even as that desirable. Thus, someone like Offa could reasonably be seen as an imperial figure, and the greater Mercia he sought to create as an empire in the model of the Carolingian Empire, that is, as a contiguous body of realms and tributaries, all under one sacral emperor. But we're getting a bit ahead of ourselves here. Before we get into his reforms and the ways that he tried to change kingship in Anglo Saxon England, we need to first familiarize ourselves with this man, Offa. Offa was the grandson of Aenwolf, a cousin of Athelbald, who received grants of land in the realm of the Witcher from Athelbald. He also founded a monastery at Braden, also in the territory of the Witcher of which Offa acted as a generous patron during his rule. Like Athelbald, Offa had no immediate claim to the throne. Rather, he was one of many members of the dynasty who struggled for the authority to rule. Offa succeeded in his struggle in 757, when he deposed Beornred, the man who succeeded and possibly played a role in the murder of Athelbald earlier that same year. Athelbald's death Brought with it a period of Mercian vulnerability, which lasted for several years. Sources from within Mercia are scanty, making it difficult to tell what was happening there, but references elsewhere suggest that the early years of Offa's reign saw some neighbours taking the opportunity to strike at Mercian power. In 760, King Eliseg of Powys launched raids from Wales into Mercia. In Wessex, King Kinewolf took the opportunity of Athelbald's murder to invade Berkshire, and seized control of the monastery of Cookham, a monastery that Athelbald had patronised. And in East Anglia, Ipswich experienced an economic boom, which may suggest that disruption within Mercia was hampering trade at the port of London. Unlike Powys and Wessex, though, East Anglia did not take the opportunity to invade Mercia, Probably because the two kingdoms enjoyed relatively cordial relations, and until the 790s, Offa seems to have pursued a policy of peace and cooperation with his Anglian neighbours to the east. In the early years of his reign, Offa probably focused on securing his position. Athelbald had done something similar, but Offa didn't have a group of friends forged in exile as Athelbald had. Instead, it seems to have been in these early years that he developed his distinctive form of statecraft, based on the assertion of the innate superiority of an overlord to a subject. We can see this in his early dealings with the Witcher. In 757, the three brothers who ruled the Witcher, Aenbert, Eildred, and Uhtred, jointly issued a grant to the Church of St. Peter's in Worcester, in which they identify themselves as, regularly, princes who require Offa's sent to grant land. In his entry in the witness list, Offa identifies himself as the King of Mercia and ruler of the Provincia province of the Witcher. Here it is worth to give a quick aside about Latin titles, since their nuances are very important during Offa's reign. The title King, of course, was Rex. Below this was Regulus, Prince and below that was dux, D-U-X, which is the root of duke, and in Anglo-Saxon England was the Latin term used for a alderman. Under Athelbald, we saw the beginnings of moves to demote rulers among people like the Whitcher as a sign of their permanent annexation into Mercia. Under Offa, this becomes even more apparent, especially in the Whitcher. While at the start of Offer's reign, Aenbert was the Regulus of the Witcher. By 778, he became simply a dux, after which point the rulers of the Witcher would remain duques of the Mercian king. The kings of other kingdoms subjected to Offer would suffer a similar fate under his reign, although in most cases, this change was not permanent. Besides the Witcher, charters don't shine much light on elsewhere in the Mercian sphere of influence, such as in Lindsay or Essex. In fact, it's hard to tell for certain if Offa retained control in these regions. He was certainly, though, still in control of London, since he began minting silver coins here in the 760s. It was in the 760s that Offa seems to have finished consolidating his power, and took the opportunity to assert his dominance over surrounding kingdoms. Three kingdoms in particular attracted Offa's attention, these being Powys, Kent and Sussex. I already mentioned that Eliseg raided Mercia in 760, and Offa returned this favour several times during his reign, with his own raids into Wales. It has also been noted that Offa's Dyke seems to follow mainly the border with the Kingdom of Powys, indicating that it may have been built in part as a defence against Eliseg's resurgent kingdom. Possibly too, the border between the two kingdoms saw a lot of back-and-forth raiding and instability, much as the Anglo-Scottish border did in later centuries, and this too may have been a part of the justification for the creation of the dike. Hi listeners, I wanted to take a second to tell you about the sponsor of today's episode, Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, restaurant-quality, and dietitian approved, and it's all ready to go in 2 minutes with minimal meal prep. I've had some fantastic meals like butter chicken and tomato risotto with Factor, and I've got to say I've been extremely impressed with all of them, they genuinely are restaurant quality. You'll get over 35 different options to choose from every week if you try out Factor, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus and Keto. Also, with pancakes, smoothies, and more, there's over 60 add-ons to help you stay fueled up and ready to go throughout the day. Factor also works around your schedule. You can order as little or as much as you need each week, and they even let you reschedule deliveries any time of when those unexpected somethings happen to pop up. And to top it all off, Factor is cheaper than ordering takeout, so it really is a smart move to try it out. Get started today, and get after your goals. If you're interested in trying Factor, head to factormeals.com slash Anglo50 and use code Anglo50 to get 50% off. That's code Anglo50 at factormeals.com slash Anglo50 to get 50% off. Offer's relations with Kent are better recorded than those with Powis, and they neatly reflect the rise of his aspirations across his reign. His first opportunity to reassert Mercian supremacy in Kent after it broke away following Athelbald's murder, came in the early 760s, when King Eadbert of Kent died, leading to a period of instability as men vied to replace him. Offer took the opportunity to intervene, probably because an unstable Kent had the possibility to destabilise London, and in 764, Offer, along with the Mercian nobility, appears in Canterbury, Granting land in the city in the company of a new Kentish king named Hebert, who only two years earlier had been witnessing Grants as a member of the Kentish king's court, the sequence of events is not hard to surmise. Offer had apparently swept into a divided Kent and elevated his own puppet king. This was fairly normal for a military overlord. What was not normal was Offer's taking the occasion to grant land to the church at Rochester in his own name. Heibert still witnessed the Charter as Rex, but the move clearly subordinated him to Offa. This strange event was a taste of things to come later in Offa's reign, but for now Heibert seems to have continued to operate largely free of mercy and interference, despite this one unusual exception. We don't know when Hebert died, but he seems to have been out of the picture by 776, when his co-ruler, Egbert II, fought a battle against Mercia at Otford and seemingly won. This established a period of Kentish independence from Mercian influence, which lasted until 785. In that year, Edgbert died and was succeeded by a man named Ailmund. We don't hear anything else about this Ailmund. Instead, Offer seems to have destroyed the Kentish monarchy in that year, and from then on began issuing charters in Kent in his own name, without even a reference to any reguli or duques. Even more extraordinarily, in 792, he issued a series of charters that revoked grants made by Egbert on the grounds that his, quote, minister had given the lands away without the consent of his lord. Let's just focus on that. Offer was claiming that Egbert, the king who had defeated him at Otford and subsequently ruled independently, had in fact not been a rightful king at all, but rather Offa's minister, a Latin term usually translated into Old English as thing. What we see here is Offa entirely annexing Kent, and systematically undermining the authority of its native dynasty in a manner wholly antithetical to the logic of traditional military overlordship. Rather than binding the Kentish kings to him as tributaries, Offa chose to replace them, not with a loyal puppet, but with himself. We see something similar happening among the South Saxons at almost exactly the same time, Offa briefly took control of Sussex around 770, but this was only a short-lived affair, possibly lasting only until 776. In around 780, though, Offa seems to have regained control, and once again systematically demoted the local kings to the ranks of duques. This practice was unprecedented in England, and it lies at the core of the idea that Offa was attempting to create a Mercian Empire. I think that to fully appreciate what Offer was trying to do, we need to distinguish between his reign prior to the year 786 and his reign after the year 786. Before 786, Offer's actions, though unusual, could be interpreted as those of a king attempting to secure his position by asserting his dominance over his subjugated neighbours. While the extent to which he did this was unusual, it did have some precedent under Athelbald and his treatment of the Whitcher. But after 786, Offa seems to have taken on a new zeal for establishing himself as a Christian emperor in England. In the key year of 786, a mission of papal legates, that is, personal representatives of the Pope, came to England with the aim of surveying and reforming the English church. While the leaders came from churches within Rome itself, Their retinue was drawn heavily from Carolingian churchmen, something that will become important for what Offa did subsequently. The legates arrived in Canterbury, and then travelled to Offa's court. From there they split into two parties, one surveying southern England and the parts of Britain under Offa's control, probably parts of Wales, and the other went to Northumbria. Throughout the mission, several councils were held, and canons issued detailing how to reform the English church and society. Once this was done, the legates returned to Rome. We only have detailed records of the mission in Northumbria, but its canons would have been related to Offa and other Anglo-Saxon kings. The most important for the study of Offa are those dealing with English society. Following the best thought of the Carolingian Renaissance, the legates held that the king stood at the head of society, and a properly anointed and moral king was essential to the earthly and spiritual well-being of his people. The canons of the Legatine mission set out that the king was the lord's anointed, and that inheritance must pass via legitimate marriage rather than simply through blood. Offer seems to have eagerly accepted these ideas, and the mission coincides with the definite radicalization of his reign, which saw him attempt to completely redefine what it meant to be an Anglo-Saxon king. Did the mission inspire this change, though? We can't know for certain, but I suspect not. Certainly, some of the changes that he pursued after 786 must have been conceived long before, and on the whole, the mission seems only to have lent new energy to ideas that offer already had, but which lacked a definite intellectual foundation. The first act Offa took following the mission was to have his son, Edgfrith, consecrated as his heir. Although kings had designated heirs before, for example, Ethelred designating his nephew, Coenred, see episode 20, the consecration of Edgfrith was something entirely different. It involved the anointing of Edgfrith by an archbishop, with a blessed oil, and was certainly inspired by Charlemagne's having his sons Pippin and Louis similarly consecrated by the Pope in 781. Edgfrith's consecration was the first event of its kind in Anglo-Saxon history, and signifies more clearly than anything else, offers interest in establishing a Carolingian-style kingship in England. There was one issue, though. Well, actually, there were a lot of issues, but one in particular affected Edgefrith's consecration. Ever since Offa snuffed out Kentish independence in 785, he had been at odds with the Archbishop of Canterbury, Janbert. Since Offa had annexed Kent, it stood to reason that Edgefrith was being set up to inherit his father's control of Kent. Thus, it is probable that Janbert would not perform the consecration. Since the only other archbishop in England was in York, and thus outside of Mercia, Offer was left with the problem of who would perform the rite. Luckily, he had a solution, to establish a new archbishopric. This move cannot have been inspired only by the need to consecrate Edgefrith, since Offer seems to have discussed it with the papal legates, suggesting that it was an idea he'd been considering prior to their arrival. But the problem of Janbert added new urgency to the issue. Luckily, Pope Adrian, who had sent the legates, was amenable to the idea, since one problem facing the English Church was the enormous size of the area overseen by Canterbury, which made it difficult for pastoral care to be properly provided for all the faithful. So when Offer suggested that Lichfield be made into a third archbishopric to oversee land between the Thames and the Humber, the Pope agreed, and the Bishop of Lichfield, Hebert, was promptly made into the first, and as it would happen only, Archbishop of Lichfield. It was Heobert who consecrated Edgefrith in 787. If Offa had been considering the idea of making Lichfield a third Archbishopric before the papal mission, then the obvious question is why. D.P. Kirby suggests that the answer may be indicated by the scope of the new Archbishopric's diocese. It encompassed land in the Mercian heartland, the surrounding smaller kingdoms like the Whitcher, and parts of East Anglia. Lichfield served, then, as the archiepiscopal centre of the Anglian kingdoms, and thus as the religious centre for a potential Mercian empire. Kirby suggests that offers activities in Kent and Sussex, although notable and very well documented, do not in fact reflect the true focus of his attentions. Rather, he aimed to build up and expand Mercia, and draw the surrounding Anglians into a closer relationship with it. This may be, he proposes, the reason for Offa's occasional use of the title Rex Anglorum, the title utilised by later kings to mean King of England. In Offa's hands, though, the term might well mean something like King of the Anglians. His actions in Kent and Sussex, then, could have been intended to secure London as a Mercian port, and nothing much else. The consecration of Edgefrith is also indicative of a change we see occurring under Offa in the imagery of kingship. We see this particularly in the silver coins he issued in the 780s, which were the first in England to bear the labelled image of the king who issued them. On these coins, Offa is depicted as a curly-haired man crowned with a diadem, The whole idea of portrait coinage was taken from the Carolingians, who themselves took it from the Roman Empire, and the diadem was exemplary of the Romanesque imagery used by the Frankish Emperor. The curly hair, on the other hand, echoes depictions of King David in Anglo-Saxon manuscripts, suggesting an attempt by Offa to present himself as divinely ordained in the way that David was. As mentioned in the last episode, the Repton Stone was also erected during Offa's reign, and its depiction of a king presumed to be Athelbald, crowned with a diadem, indicates that this was indeed part of a concerted effort to present a particular image of kingship. On the topic of coins, it's also worth noting that Offa's coins often bore the names of their moneyers who minted them. One of the moneyers used by Offa was one Wilred, who also served as a moneyer for King Bayona of East Anglia. This is further evidence for close ties between Offa's Mercia and the East Anglians. Offa also used his coinage to demonstrate his lifelong monogamy, important given the canon's insistence of heirs coming from a properly recognised marriage. Offa's queen, Kynithrith, is the only Anglo-Saxon queen, indeed the only queen in Western Europe, to have her own coinage. These were clearly modelled on offers, and deliberately echo the Romanesque motifs of power. The purpose of these coins has been debated, since they don't seem to have been intended for widespread use. Rather, it's been suggested they were minted specifically to be used for Kienothrit's donations to religious houses. Given the extent to which Offa, post-786, sought to emulate the Carolingians, it's fitting that Charlemagne is known to have corresponded with Offer on several occasions. The relationship was not one of equals, at least from Charlemagne's perspective, but rather one in which Offer was treated as the junior partner. Charlemagne was particularly interested in the trade coming from Mercia, and seems to have desired to keep Offa happy so that this trade could continue undisturbed. Offer got in the way of this, though when, in 789, Charlemagne offered to have one of Offa's daughters marry his son, Charles. Offa counter-offered, making the union contingent on Charlemagne allowing his daughter to marry Offa's son, Edgfrith. This suggestion outraged Charlemagne, who promptly broke off trade with the Mercians, and in retaliation, Offa did likewise to Francia. The dispute only lasted a short while, though, as Alcuin indicates in a letter he wrote in 790, which refers to trade having been resumed. However, it is clear that Offa and Charlemagne each understood their relationship differently. Offa seems to have regarded Charlemagne as his equal. Charlemagne, on the other hand, saw Offa as just one English king. Not only did he refuse a marriage alliance with him, but also on several occasions he harboured men fleeing Offa's persecution, hardly the actions of a close and loyal equal. Alcuin, for whose biography see episode 16, also wrote many letters to Offer, Kinothrith, Edgefrith, and various other nobles and churchmen of the Mercian and other Anglo-Saxon kingdoms. And these letters are a treasure trove of information. In them, for example, he praises Offa for his devotion to learning and urges him to be a Christian king. Alcuin seems to have recognised that Offa was attempting to follow in the footsteps of the Carolingians, and of course being a partisan of Charlemagne and the Carolingians, Alcuin was keen to encourage this, particularly given the moral degradation of Ethelred, the king of Northumbria at this time. In letters to others, though, particularly following Offa's death, Alcuin lamented the violence with which Offa had achieved his preeminent position, and saw in the collapse of his grand plans the hand of God punishing him for his cruelty. We already saw some of this violence in the treatment of Kent, but perhaps the fatal act of violence occurred in East Anglia. Bayona had been succeeded by Athelbert II in 779, and for a while things seemed to have continued peacefully between Mercia and East Anglia. However, at some point in the 790s, Athelbert seems to have attempted to assert his independence. This is seen from his minting coins in his own name, and with his own likeness. In response, in 794, Offa had him executed, and assumed direct rule of East Anglia, ruling it until his own death in 796. This act of coercion undermined his project for Mercian Empire, since it roused East Anglian hostilities to Mercia, where previously the two kingdoms had enjoyed relative concord. When Offa died, Edgfrith succeeded him as he had wished, however Mercian control of East Anglia, Kent and Sussex crumbled with the disappearance of Offa's great power. To make matters worse, Edgfrith himself died only a few months after his father. Both apparently died of natural causes, but the timing left Offa's vision in ruins if edgefrith had lived, then it's entirely possible that Offa's vision of a greater Mercia, and possibly even a Mercian empire, would have survived. But as it happened, Edgefrith's sudden death meant that there was no one to take his place, and the greater Mercia that Offer had created very quickly vanished into basically just what it had been before, that is, Mercian military supremacy. With the line of Aewa ended, a new dynasty rose in Mercia, which actively repudiated Offa's legacy, and the kingdoms he had annexed to the east and south regained their independence. Although Mercia after Offa was by no means weak, the radical reforms made by Offa were reversed, and a new dynasty of Mercian kings took the stage, and began asserting their own power over southern England in far more traditional terms. Thank you for listening. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Anglo-Saxon England podcast. Once again, if you have, I'd like to ask that you like, subscribe, comment, follow, whatever it is you do on whatever platform you prefer. And if you're able to, please support our Patreon. Anything helps. But that's all for now. Thank you for listening. I've been your host, Tom Kearns, and this has been the Anglo-Saxon England podcast.